This episode of Positive Space is brought to you by the Folding Art Horse, makers of professional-grade drawing horses. The patented Folding Art Horse uniquely folds flat, allowing for greater storage and portability. If you or your university don't have much storage space, the Folding Art Horse is for you. They're great for travel, too. Check out the Folding Art Horse at thefoldingarthorse.com. Welcome to Positive Space, Conversations and Art Foundations, a production of Foundations in Art, Theory and Education, also known as FATE. Positive Space is a podcast providing opportunities for those passionate about art foundations to discuss and promote excellence in the development and teaching of college-level foundations in art studio and art history classes. Joining me today via Skype, we have Brian Hitzelberger, Assistant Professor of Art from Piedmont College. Welcome, Brian. Hi, Valerie. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this is super fun. Very exciting. (laughs) I thought we could kind of start with a little introduction in terms of who you are as an artist and um, an educator. What kind of things do you teach? What kind of things do you make? Well, I teach in a very small department at a small liberal arts school, Piedmont College in the North Georgia Mountains. I am one of three full-time studio faculty in my department, and I teach uh, painting, drawing, and printmaking uh, classes. And the way our department is structured is if you're taking a class in any one of those mediums, you're, you're pretty much taking it with me. We do have some teaching fellows or adjuncts that we work with that occasionally will teach in those disciplines, but primarily it's myself. Um, wow. Yeah, yeah. And then in my own work, I guess I actually do work in all of those mediums myself. But in addition to that, I also really like to work with space. The past five years I've been doing, I call them wall drawings. I guess they're installations. It's, it's like a combination of painting and drawing and, and using almost using the wall like a piece of paper. Mm. Um, but then um, also adding three-dimensional elements that hang on the wall or sag onto the floor and sort of sit off of the wall in some cases. Wow. So you're you're able to sort of incorporate the things that you're teaching in terms of your practice. They sort of overlap in terms of that hybrid flux sort of nature. Yeah, definitely. And to your point, when I say I didn't really get it together with my own work until I started teaching, what I mean by that is the types of things that I, I think of art as being able to do and the types of purposes that I see, see art as having – One of the primary ones is really, I really think of art making as an opportunity to achieve a kind of sobriety of thought. I don't really know that I can fully make up my mind about something until I've made work about it or until some aspect of that thinking has gone into the making process. And I really have approached teaching the same way. Teaching for me has been like this incredible opportunity to really confront all of the things that I don't know. Mm-hmm. And when you're put in the position to explain something to somebody else or to teach something to somebody else, I have found that I really have to really learn it very deeply and um, really, really learn it in such a way that it can be communicated to another person in language that they are able to use. And through that process, I've, I've just found that like my teaching and my work have really come together. And I, I definitely find 
I mentioned earlier that I teach drawing, painting, and printmaking. I don't teach all of those every semester. It's it's like kind of in like a you know non-specific rotation. But I, I do find that whatever I am teaching, really, my thinking about what to make in my own studio is informed by what it is that I'm teaching that semester or that year or that summer, et cetera. Oh, that's really curious. Well, and I, I love what you just said about confronting what you don't know, that yeah. it's, it's an opportunity to really investigate and really reflect on expanding, you know, your own knowledge. I mean, I think so often we think about teaching as like, okay, like, what am I really good at? Or what's my mm-hmm. jam? Or like, what, what, mm-hmm. what am I awesome at? And, you know, in, in some kind of finality of that, but it's so nice to, to hear you think about that as a way to continue learning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, well, well, it, it's been, a, I mean, it's certainly a challenge, right? Um, and I think, I think most artists I know get excited by challenges. So at, like I mentioned before, I, I teach painting, right? I'm like, I'm pretty much the only painting faculty on staff. And if there's a student who's a painting major, I feel a responsibility to show them the whole world of painting. And that's, <laughs> that's, mm, that's huge. That's so much pressure. <laughs> right. Right, it is. I mean, there are certainly things that I am better at than others, um, mm-hmm. of course. Um, but I also feel bound to at least ex- expose them to things that I'm, I'm not necessarily very good at or don't use very often and kind of blunder through. And particularly when I first started teaching, I would get very nervous when I would do demos in class. Mm. The idea of everybody's looking at me, here I go, I'm going to do this, I don't really know what I'm doing, da-da-da-da-da. I found that that kind of feeling can really get in the way of effective communication, you know? Sure. And so I have, in those moments, just been like, okay, guys, I'm going to show you how to do this. I haven't really done this in a long time, or I'm, I don't, I, like, this is not something I often do, and this is the way that I've come to understand it. Feel free to elaborate on this. If anyone has any of their own knowledge that they want to bring into this conversation, I'm open to that, et cetera. And just kind of draw attention to the fact that, you know, I'm demonstrating something that I may not feel completely solid about doing in that moment. And, you know, I find that that really just ameliorates the kind of tension that can surround those experiences. And it just makes for a more, I don't know, a more honest conversation or just what I always imagine to be a more productive experience for the student. Well, sure. And it makes you human again. You're not this perfect robot that doesn't ever mess up or that, you know, you're not someone that isn't able to talk about something that's hard or something that's challenging or this wasn't easy at first, but now I'm doing it and blah, 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 you know, or, oh, this didn't work at all. This is not purple. This is brown, you know, or like whatever is supposed to be happening. Because I think maybe they feel more comfortable when, when someone else is honest or vulnerable. I mean, I think that's probably human nature, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. I think even if I didn't say things like that, the students are aware of it. Um, Oh, sure. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's been, that's been like a big MO for me in my own, in my own teaching practice. And I think it's also been really good for me in my studio because, you know, sometimes we kind of know that our work needs something as artists that we may not necessarily know how to do. The kind of confidence that has come from teaching things I don't necessarily know how to do. I can apply that to my own studio. Like, okay, I don't really, I I know that the work needs this. And I know that I can't do it on my own. So how can I teach myself how to do this or find somebody who knows and bring them into the process? Um, oh, that's, that's so exciting because I, I think it just sort of encourages 
curiosity is, yeah. is so attractive and so crucial as a human being, but, but absolutely as an artist, this idea that, okay, I don't have to just use paper in this. I, I, I can expand or I can consider other opportunities. Right. Yeah. And I had a, I had a professor in graduate school who really encouraged all of her students to get very comfortable with the idea of collaboration in, in their work and to dispense with the idea that, you know, as an artist, you had to do everything yourself. And I, at the time, that was kind of a radical notion to me. Um, I mean, I was open to the idea, but I had just never really heard it before. And, you know, as years go by from that, com- from that sort of initial exposure to that idea, that idea has become more and more important and valuable to me, I think, because I'm, I certainly am somebody who's not interested in just sort of rehashing the same thing or, or sort of the, only the things that I feel the most confident doing again and again and again. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. As I say that, I am, of course, <laughs> I am, of course, aware that there are so many artists who have really just refined a, a certain type of work or a certain type of method or a certain type of piece even over the course of their entire careers. And I have such respect for that kind of focus. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and I think, I think it's important to be able to say, well, that's, that's great for you, but that's really not for me. Or that's, that's not something I could get excited about in terms of that kind of working method, maybe. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I, I have to kind of be aware that I do have this great respect for for that approach. And and I am also somebody as an artist and as a teacher, and I'm really open about this with my students. I, I really think virtuosity is an honorable goal, you know, I, I, and I think it's worthy of a life's work. And it's something that I want for myself, too. I mean, I, I want to I want my work to feel virtuosic. And I just ha- I, it's it's you know, figuring out what that means and what that looks like is more or less the project of, of my life. And I feel like that's also the project of my, my students' lives. Like, what is their work and how do they make it as, 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 as well as they can? Um, mm. Like, what, what does that need? Like, what does that need? Sure. Well, so when, when they're in the studio working, are you working alongside them? Like, do you bring in your work and, and show them or, or do you talk to them about your work in a really specific way or? I think when I'm really, when, the, when, when the stars align and I really <laughs> have kind of got my planning like down, I will demonstrate <laughs> something that is sort of the next thing on the syllabus that they need to learn. And I will demonstrate that on a piece that I am making. And so, like I said, like often, like what I'm making is really reflected by what I'm teaching. Mm -hmm. So there's a natural overlap there. And it's like, okay, today's the day we're learning how to print a three color reductive linoleum print, et cetera. And like that, if everything's kind of going the way that it is when it's like when all cylinders are firing, like I have one of those that I'm kind of working on at the time. And the demonstration process is happening like on a piece that I'm making or like the the painting technique that I'm doing is happening on a piece that I'm making or it's happening on a preparatory work for something else that I'm going to then build upon in my own studio in private and make. Um, Does that make sense? It does. It does. So that kind of makes the demo be a little more or it could be maybe a little more intense because that's that's your thing. That's the thing that right. that you've spent time with or that you have hopes for or that you have an expectation of. Uh-huh. Yeah. 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 So 
it seems sure. like it could be a little more nerve nerve wracking. Yeah, I mean, it's, sometimes it can be, but it's also I don't know. I mean, I think think it's sometimes really healthy to be like, oh, that didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> right or look how terrible that is you guys can yeah. do a better job than this you know? <laughs> like, yeah yeah I mean it's it's like uh, you know like or, or like or wow that was a complete disaster I mean I just I know when I was a student I used to really beat myself up when I quote did things wrong mm. um and it really takes a, a huge shift in your thinking to recognize that it's it's not really about doing things right it's about doing things well and those are two different modes of thought and there are these kind of magical people magical students magical artists that sort of seem to have the golden hands right like they just can do no wrong (laughs) i have never been one of those people and i had the fortune slash misfortune to actually be in my own undergrad experience like it seemed like i was surrounded by those people i just happened to be in school with a lot of very skilled makers oh that's so funny same here i mean i remember the first drawing class everybody was just it seemed like they were rock stars you know mm-hmm. <laughs> i was like i'm just going to totally. be in the corner and i don't want to show you my drawings yet yeah totally yeah i mean i think that that was i i think that that experience i had a similar experience too um a lot of the it seems like i was in school with a lot of people who really already knew what their art was or they had all of this they had all this background in in making visual art that i did not have so they were um they had all these skills available to them and all this self-awareness about you know how to express the contents of their mind visually mm-hmm. and i i i just didn't have that and i i do have this idea that really every not even every artist, but everybody who is engaged in, in making visual work, there's so many things involved in, in making a work of art. There's just so many skills and, and habits of mind, et cetera. And I really think that everybody gets a freebie. You know, like there's something that comes naturally to every student. Some of them are just really great with color. Some of them you know, it's like they can't make a bad composition. Some of them have a willingness to be vulnerable that is just admirable and it seems so foreign to the person right next to them. I think one of my freebies, like the thing that really came naturally to me was just a willingness to try, try and try again. That was something that was very, it, it, it seemed to make sense to me right off the bat, like, okay, this didn't work out. I'm going to go ahead and try this again. Or I need to come up with an idea, so I'm going to go ahead and come up with 25 or 30 of them, as opposed to just sort of coming up with an idea and running with that. Like, I, I seem to understand intuitively that art, that the, that the making of work was a, was a process um, as opposed to a destination. That was something that kind of came naturally to me. And, and, and now becoming a teacher, I see that that is, that's, of course, not something that comes naturally to every student. And sometimes the students that are possessed of a great deal of skill coming into a, an art program, that is a habit of mind that is harder for them to move into. Mm, and and I've, I've found that, that encouraging that understanding can just be so challenging, especially right. when that, that doesn't come naturally to the particular student. And I mean, it's so curious how you're talking about this because I've, I've never thought about it that way exactly, but it, it makes so much sense in terms of things that everybody gets like a freebie and, and that, that kind of idea that, you know, certain things are just sort of in, more intuitive to certain mm-hmm. people and certain students. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I'm probably going to think about that all day long. <laughs> That's <laughs> well, wonderful. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I think that the I think that the things that come intuitively to the instructor are inevitably are the most difficult to teach because you understood them intuitively, right? Um, right, that's that's so true. So how how do you go about trying to communicate this idea of, of process and sort of trial and error and really celebrating and, and kind of even enjoying that? I mean, how how do you try to incorporate that in in your classes or in your teaching instruction? Well, I think, you know, when I mess up a demo on a piece I'm working on while they all watch, (laughs) I think it's like very effectively communicated, right? Um, And, you know, and then, you know, they're watching what you're doing, but they're also watching what, how you react to what you're doing. So, you know, when I mess something up, I just, you know, I don't wail and gnash my teeth. Um, (laughs) I just like, oh, well, you know, that's how it goes. I think that so often, like, there's what we're teaching, and then there's what is being taught by how we're teaching. The students are learning. I think the students are often learning things they're not even aware of. Sure. Um, until maybe much, much later. Um, I know that I was as a student. Mm-hmm. Well, and, you know, you, you talked about the importance of process and, and how that's really crucial um, to, to the learning experience. And something that I find pretty challenging is, you know, that, that we're required often, or it feels like we're supposed to be grading the end thing, you know, that's supposed to be pretty and finished and polished where maybe there's all these other things that happened in getting there. Do you find that it's challenging to grade the product versus the process? Or do do you, do you find ways to sort of assess the making process and the the research, the research and the trial and error and sort of all of that. I think it's dependent upon like where the student is in their program. Like I definitely am putting a lot of emphasis on the end product when the student is more advanced. I just think that it's important to really understand this idea that the way something looks really is very important. The process, like, that's kind of what we get, get, like, we as artists, like, I feel like the process, that's really for our benefit, and it's important to think critically about that and and kind of challenge ourselves in these ways and experience the sort of roller coaster of emotions, like, with with the process of making. But, you know, art is, in so many ways, um, it's, it's seen by others. It's seen by people who are, who don't have the lived experience of making the work. Right. And so we Mm -hmm. should never, we should never pretend that the way something looks isn't absolutely essential to securing some kind of attention from, from an audience. That is, that is something that I say, and that is something that I believe. And that I think is something that the students want how do I grade that I do I definitely do think a lot about um, and pay very close attention to you know how has the student progressed over the course of this span of time or how has Mm -hmm. the student progressed over the semester and I said earlier I'm in a small department I think we have right around 60 majors and the five years ago when I started at Piedmont we had 30 and so I know I know it's incredible so I have a student in, she's graduating next semester and she signed up for a, like an advanced studies painting class with me where she's essentially making her own work. And I'm, it's, it's almost like a directed study, um, mm-hmm. but that will be like her ninth or 10th class that she's had with me in her time at Piedmont, maybe even more than that. 
And that's something that my school has really allowed me to be very attentive to, is the progress of an individual student. Because I've spent a part of the day, almost every day, for the past four years with her. And I really, when I'm, when I'm speaking to her about her work, I really am talking to her as opposed to making these general statements, right. um, you know, that, that are maybe more applicable in like a freshman drawing class or a foundations class. I, I really um, have been able to form one-on-one relationships with my students, especially the ones who major in painting or drawing at, in my program. So that has been one of the joys of teaching at Piedmont is bearing witness to one student's individual progress over the course of a very long time. Yeah, that's, that's incredible. I mean, that you get to sort of see them from the beginning and then continue to be invested in their process and their artistic habits. And you can sort of make those connections like, oh, well, remember when you were doing this over here? And that right. could sort of inform what you're doing now. And right. That's wonderful. I mean, I, yeah. I often feel like I, you know, they go through the foundation semester that, that I'm, I'm teaching them. And then, you know, I'll see them in art openings and I'm like, oh, yeah, hey, you know, yes. it's just, how's it going? Um, how's it going? <laughs> I, I'm not your teacher anymore. But so I think that's that's sort of a challenging thing. So it's really wonderful that, that you get to sort of see that entire experience. Yeah. And it's, you know, as with most things that are truly like, you know, magical gifts about the universe, it, it cuts both ways like um, because (laughs) you know I'm I'm not I'm I'm not this like Yoda like figure filled with infinite wisdom the truth of the matter is like after three semesters with me many much of the time they can almost predict what's going to come out of my mouth before I say it right (laughs) (laughs) I also as an educator I have to kind of challenge that making sure that I'm not just sort of rehashing the same advice to everybody. The way that I challenge that, particularly in my advanced classes, um, I actually recently started doing this, is that I will have guest critics come in for the critiques. Everybody who may have had me for five semesters, six semesters, seven semesters, et cetera, they're going to get a critique from me. And like I mentioned, they may know what I'm going to say before I say it. But they're also having the benefit of somebody who has never seen their work before. Oh, nice. Yeah, and never worked before. So they have to explain themselves to somebody fresh every time. And I find that that is like this magical experience because they... Their, their work becomes more clear to them when they have to say it to someone else or explain it to someone else again and again and again, um, like for the first time, multiple times over the course of a semester. These people who act as guest critics are often not art faculty. They may be faculty from other departments on campus, which is really pretty incredible. Oh, that is really wonderful. That's such a gift to those students. This idea of being familiar, reintroducing yourself as an artist is, is such an important thing to learn how to do because we often have to do that all the time. Totally. You know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Well, and so it seems like like you're able to bring in fresh fresh eyes so that these students are, are able to get, you know, new experiences. You know, are, are there other, I, I, I guess I'm, I'm curious in terms of when students come into the college, are they going, are, are you like their first person that they would probably see, I guess, in terms of a drawing class? Yeah, yeah. So like our foundations program, it's, it's just five classes. It's 2D and 3D design, drawing one and two. And interestingly enough, painting one is also in our foundations program. We do not have a distinct color theory class. Oh, okay, um, yeah. 
Yeah, and um, that is addressed in painting one and also in 2D design and 3D design. I do do some work with color in drawing too, um, but really the bulk of the color um, exposure and color study comes in 2D design and, and in painting. And so I teach drawing one and two and painting, like clockwork. Like I, I just always teach those classes. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, and typically... I teach drawing one at 8 a.m. on Monday, Wednesday, Friday. So, you know, if the semester starts on a Monday and drawing is at 8 a.m. and they're freshmen, quite often I'm their first exposure to college, period. Not only to art, but to, to higher ed. That is That has been something that, you know, I teach those classes very differently than my upper-level classes, of course. That has been, like, essentially a truism of my time at Piedmont College. Wow, well, so do you find that um, there are certain things that you think about or address beyond the elements and principles and all, all of those kinds of things, but that you feel like are important things that you want your students to walk away from in those foundation classes? Oh, 100%. The, the types of group conversations that we have are, I think, in the beginning of the semester, I think this, I often think to myself, the students must just be wondering, like, why are we talking about this while we're doing this? Because I will, <laughs> I will do, I will do a demo and then we'll have a project and it's fairly structured. I find that the, I find that our students really respond to structure, particularly right in the beginning. Um, Absolutely. I agree with that 100%. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so they'll be working on something and then I will actually kind of try to get the class involved in a conversation that maybe on the surface be like completely unrelated to what it is that they're doing. And then I'll try and tie it into what they're doing. So for example, I really want the students to start to think deeply about symbolic representation. When you make an image of something, but you intend it to sort of mean something else, like what is, what is happening there? Like what is that dynamic between like an artist, a piece and an audience, right? Mm -hmm. And I find... And it's not, of course, this is, of course, is not true all the time. But if I take a group of freshmen and say, draw me a picture communicating sadness, many of them are going to draw a frowny face. <laughs> right, right. That's it's, sort of the, the first thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, there's almost like a one to one correspondence between like what I'm what I'm making and what I'm intending to communicate. Right. Mm -hmm. And part of my job as an educator is like, how can we make our symbols more rich? How can we make our communication more meaningful, et cetera? I might have them, I, I find that a really interesting way to get them talking about symbolic representation is to talk about tattoos. Oh. Um, so many of our, my students are interested in going into the field of becoming a tattoo artist. Like I've noticed that like within the last half decade, we really are living in kind of like a renaissance of tattoos. Um, it's, it almost seems that more people have them than don't. That's so and, true, yeah. And, and everybody has opinions about them, right? So <laughs> a conversation about, like, tattoos can segue into a conversation about, like, what an image means. Once we're sort of in that conversational territory, that can start to be applied to what we're doing in the class. Of course, we're not tattooing each other. <laughs> right. <laughs> sure. I just had a mental image of that. That would, yeah. <laughs> well, and, but, and, and, so, and so are your classes, I guess, small enough that you guys can all have a conversation together like that? Yeah. I mean, I had a class of, I think last year I had a class of 21 and that was like, that was like huge. Like that was like the biggest class I'd ever had. And that's, that's still fairly small, 
it was actually pushing the limits of like the the facilities and, and spaces. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This past semester, the fall of 2017, this is the first time this has actually ever happened in the history of our department. I had two sections of drawing one. So my morning class was eight people and my afternoon class was 14 people. No, that sounds so romantic and lovely. I can't imagine. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, yeah. I teach 30 students and that's, that's oh small compared to what I used to teach. But I mean, I teach collaboratively with, you know, another faculty. But still, yeah. wow, that sounds so nice. So you really are able to really chat and really talk about things and, and do that all together. Right, right. And it and it's that's been like a huge part of my I think a huge part of my pedagogy is the idea of like we're we're talking and thinking about maybe something that on the surface is very separate from what we're doing, but I try and find these ways to sort of like lead the conversation to connect what we're talking about to what we're doing and 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 in doing so try and connect what the students are maybe not aware that they already know to what to, to what they're learning. I really don't see them as kind of like these empty uh, vessels to be filled with knowledge, right? I mean like there's there's so much that they already have that they they may not really be aware of. And, and there's so much that they can use um, in their work. And it's it's my job to really awaken them to that, I think. In, in addition, of course, to teaching them, I mean, you, I, I also want them to be able to, like, measure proportions. Right, know? and use a ruler and cut, you know, and, and of course, of course, absolutely. No, I totally understand that. But, I mean, I, I absolutely agree with you that, I mean, the students, they they know so much and they they have the answers to so many things but it just seems like maybe they're not sure what the questions are or they're right. you know there's there's just sort of a like redirecting and assisting absolutely yeah. i mean um well it's it's so curious too that that you're involved in first year experience or that first um semester and then you also get to see students throughout their career as a student i mean i'm curious what what got you involved in fate or how did that happen well i one of my closest friends and a wonderful colleague is Jessica Wall, um, who is a professor at the University of the South in Sewanee, Tennessee. Mm-hmm. And we went to graduate school together and we've just, you know, kind of bonded immediately and just kept up a really close dialogue over the years. And she initially became involved in FATE and she actually alerted me to this to, to the organization and to the conference. And she, I think, was the one who really was like, Brian, I think you'd really be interested in this. And I think, you know, knowing you and knowing the types of things that you're interested in, I think that you would benefit a lot from this. And I think that the organization would benefit from having you be a part of it. And so she was chairing a panel in the conference in Indianapolis in 2015, was it? Right, right. Ab- absolutely. Uh-huh. Yeah. That was my first fate conference, and she invited me to submit a proposal for a panel that she was chairing on drawing. And I did, and I ended up actually presenting on her panel, and that was actually my first academic conference period. Uh, I'd, I'd, I'd never been to a conference before of any kind. Uh, that's not true, actually. I had attended Southern Graphics as a, a, a printmaking conference before. But I was, I just felt so, in going to fate that first time, it, it was just like astonishing to be in a room full of people that were basically engaged in the same kinds of questions, the same kinds of challenges as I was in, in various settings. But at the core, there were all these um, similar issues that we were all dealing with and working working through. And I felt at the conclusion of that particular conference, just like totally like refreshed and energized and was like, oh, my gosh, I got it. I got to get into this. 
And so, um, yeah, I mean, the Kansas City conference, I was really looking forward to it, was able to present again. And, and I, I mean, it's been it's been great. And the, the kind of community support and the folks that I've met through Fate, the exchange of ideas that I've been able to have with them, I mean, I'm already seeing ways to implement that into my own teaching. Yeah, I mean, I I had a similar experience. Um, I just felt like everyone was so comfortable in in their own skin in a way. Uh And there wasn't this sort of like posturing and everyone's going to say that they know everything when they really don't, you know, or that. It just felt like everything was was really authentic and genuine. And and I just, oh, that's so refreshing. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I, I agree. And I think, and I bet, I bet you would agree with this too. I think that's because the job is so hard. Yes. And it's, and it's always changing. I mean, how do you really, you know, that, that early moments in a student's education and in a kind of, in a foundations program, it is, it is a constantly shifting challenge. It's complicated by the fact that there are some things that sort of always stay the same, right? You know, Mm -hmm. like using a ruler is, we pretty much are going to use rulers the same way. <laughs> I mean, there's there's some things that are static and that, you know, we maybe are in agreement or maybe in discussion about whether they should or shouldn't, you know, stay in place into the future. But then there are also these, these shifting realities that really, if we're wanting to do our jobs well, we have to attend to. And the ways in which you attend to them, I mean, are, are, are always changing. Well, and, you know, I, I definitely feel like it's a job that you have to, I mean, to do well and to, to be authentic, you know, as, as we all, you know, strive to be. I mean, it just seems like there, there has to be like a sense of ongoing awareness, but then also like ongoing reflection on our part in terms of, um, you know, how am I really doing? And did I really say this well? And I don't know, could I have been more patient there? Or did I really... Uh-huh. You know, all of those, which is exhausting, right? I mean, it's oh, yeah. it's, it's wonderful, but it's also, um, th- there's so much to it. Do you have tips or thoughts on, on how to maintain honesty and openness and still have energy to, you know, shower and things like that? Oh. <laughs> you um, know, and like life and eating and all of that. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm reminded of one of my favorite writers is Annie Dillard. And oh gosh, I feel like I've read her book so many times. I don't even know which book this was from. But she says that a routine is the shield that we use against the chaos that is existence. Like life just is chaos, right? And like a routine is a kind of shield that we have against that. So I'm, I'm actually a very structured person and I don't naturally tend to be that way. It's, it's, I think it's routine and structure has been sort of forced upon me by my external circumstances <laughs> because <laughs> first of all, where I live and where I work are, there's, are 50 miles apart Piedmont is a teaching university, so, um, I mean, this semester I was teaching there every day. So I have a two-hour commute to factor into class prep, teaching, and the rest of my life. So just two hours of the waking day are just gone, right? Wow. Yeah. In order to kind of do everything that I need to do, I just... I just really can't kind of mess around and <laughs> sure, um, sure. But I, I, I also am somebody who I, I do think I'm kind of, I don't know if I've always been like this or if, if I've grown into this kind of person, I take great pleasure in kind of crossing things off the to-do list. 
Um, me too. That's so delicious. Like the first thing on my list is always make a list. So then I can uh, immediately check it off. Like I literally write down, like make a list done. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, This, and it's, it's funny because like, I, I didn't really plan on being this kind of person. I guess it just sort of snuck up on me. And I'm, I'm thinking about, I had, uh, I had like brunch with a colleague of mine, um, a, a woman who actually, she's no longer at Piedmont anymore, but she, at the time she was teaching sociology. We're around the same age and we had actually started the same time. And this was a few years ago. We were meeting up and this is really the first time we'd ever seen each other outside of work. So we're talking about how we grew up and blah, 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 blah. And she said something to me. She said, um, so, you know, you, you, you're obviously a very structured person and a very routine oriented person and da, 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 da. And I, I can't remember what the second part of what she says, but I was like, well, how do you, how did you know that? How did you know that? Like, what was it about my, what was it about me that kind of gave you that sense? And she said, well, I mean, you're 30 years old and you're, a, you're a, a, a full-time faculty member at a university. I mean, that's typically just, just the reality of your life typically communicates a certain amount of focus, uh, just by definition. And mm. I, I thought that that was very insightful. She's a sociologist, right? I thought that that was very <laughs> so that, That's probably, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like, I, I guess I never really stopped to consider that, that I don't think, I don't think people just sort of end up here. It's not some, it's not something that you'd kind of fall into, um, teaching college or being an artist or going to graduate school. I mean, it, it's like, these are sort of like conscious decisions that you make in a certain order and, and there, there are efforts that require a significant amount of attention and focus to fulfill. So the people who are doing them, I mean, it becomes somewhat of a safe bet that you're at least a little bit devoted to routine or a little bit. Right. Devoted to or you're a little bit intense or you're a little bit like intentional, right. at least about how you spend your time um, yeah. and sort of how you arrange those kind of priorities. Yeah. 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 So that's, that's like the structural part of like, I think kind of getting everything done is, and then the sort of more emotional side of things, like the kind of like willingness to sort of be, be this kind of person with my students. I, I really do see it as almost like a political act. And this actually goes into what I presented on at the last fake conference in Kansas city, which is, you know, I am, I am a gay man in the South in 2017 and um, I'm part of a non-traditional family structure where I'm co-parenting with my partner and his ex-partner, their 13-year-old adopted son. And so ask any parents or any caregiver, the presence of a child in your life, I mean, you, ju- you just have to get it together. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> like, you can't, you just can't mess around. And all three of the adults involved in the, in the family unit, we all work. My partner's ex is actually a professor at the University of Georgia, so he's also an academic. Between kind of doing our jobs and being a family, I mean, there's just there's just not a lot of room for sort of like twiddling your thumbs or being well, should I or shouldn't I, which doesn't mean that we don't do that. But sure, <laughs> I think think that being in a parent role has also really required me to just like just stop messing around <laughs> just, just get it get things done sure um, yeah um so that's that's i think the others the other side of things and 
because of where I teach in this sort of small school in North Georgia, I started my job and was really very, it started, you know, initially I thought to myself, well, there, there's, a, there's a strong chance that my students, many of whom are coming from this area, I may be the only person living this kind of life that they've ever met. Like, in addition to, you know, teaching them all the skills that they need to know in order to make the best work that they can make, I also feel like it's in some ways a part of my role just to show them what a life can look like, you know, what what a family life can look like. Or I think being gay and out in the South still is a political act. That was really important to me to kind of bring that into my classroom because I wanted to have an honorable relationship with my students. And I felt like in order to do that, there needed to be trust there. And the only way I know how to create trust is through honesty. That was that was just very clear to me from the beginning. So that was um, a conscious decision that I made to kind of bring the fullness of my experience into the classroom and start from there. It's been one of, I think, the best decisions I've made as a, as a professor and as, as an educator. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it just, it's, it's such a responsibility, but then I think, you know, it's a choice to, to feel comfortable and to, to, to want to be who you are. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I imagine that the students are really receptive to, to that. And I imagine really appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, I think, I think so. I, I think, I think it has. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's sort of hard to judge that, I, I would imagine, but, but yeah. Oh, man, I hate that we're out of time. Brian, I have so many other things I want to ask you about. <laughs> oh, my gosh, is that it? I know, it is. It's terrible. <laughs> I can't believe it. We're, we're going to have to have you on again because I have, I have a million other questions for you. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I, 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 um, I hope we didn't get sidetracked talking about things that are, I don't know. No, um, no, not at all, not at all, not at all. No, no, no. It's wonderful. I'm so happy that, that we were able to talk about everything. And yeah, it just, it just got me thinking about so many other things. It's like, oh, I want to ask you about this. And, I, you know, and it's like, oh, no, it's, it's time to go. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for, for your time and your willingness to, to talk about your work and, and, and everything. It's just been really lovely. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Positive Space. If you're interested in being part of FATE's ongoing conversation about art foundations, visit the FATE website at foundationsart.org. Don't forget the dash between foundations and art. This episode's interview was conducted by Valerie Powell and was engineered and edited by Raymond Gaddy. Our theme music was provided by Lee Rosevere. If you like what you hear on Positive Space, be sure to give us a review at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever it is you find your podcast. Better yet, send us some audio. You can call Positive Space at 904-990-FATE. That's 904-990-3283. You may find your voice on the next episode of Positive Space.